Father, we're here tonight for a Bible study. And we are going to study this, this book again tonight because it is your book. And because we are living our lives and wherever we are in life, we are at a place in life that we have never been at before. Uh, we, we are, uh, as John Bunyan used the picture in Pilgrim's Progress, we, we are on a journey, we are on a path. Uh, we are on a different place than we were last week. We're a little further down the path. We're certainly not where we were five years ago, or 10 years ago, or 15 years ago. And life has a beginning, life has a middle, and life has an end. Uh, most folks do not like to think about the end, but it's coming, it's irreversible. It's, uh, it's when this life, we take our last breath. And that is the great unknown if we don't look into your word. And between now and then, we need guidance. We are living in a dark world that is getting darker with each passing day. It is staggering how dark things are. And we read in your word that it's not going to get any lighter until you return. So, the psalmist said, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How do we walk wisely? How do we navigate the stretch of highway that we find ourselves on today in a dark world? Well, we need light. We need a lamp. And that comes from you and it comes from your word. Uh, it is from your word that we get wisdom. It's from your word that we get truth. It's from your word that we get very words out of your um, prophets, out of your inspired writers, and they are conveying uh, the words that you breathed out. So we, we handle your word carefully. We handle it seriously. Uh, your word, your book, stands over every other book. It is the authority because it comes from you, and you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Here we are trying to walk through this life. Uh, you created this life. You created us. You've enclosed us behind and before. Uh, you know exactly where we are. You know exactly where every guy is, every situation, every circumstance, every... Um, um, great piece of news that was heard this week by every guy in this room, every bad piece of news, you know it all. How foolish we would be to not consult with you. How foolish we would be to not listen to you. How foolish we would be to not apply what you teach us out of your book. Uh, your word says the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness. And as we study tonight, we are expecting your guidance. We, we are expecting your spirit, your Holy Spirit, to teach us and instruct us. You said, I'll instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So tonight, once again, we ask that you would give us what we need. Now, that's, that's an interesting thing to pray because some of us think we know what we need, but we've got it wrong. You know precisely what we need. We trust you to give it to us. You're the bread of heaven. You supply all of our needs in the exact way that we need them, in the exact timing that we need them, in the exact portion that we need them. We'll count on you to do that again tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing this study that we started back in the fall in, on Hebrews 11. We've mentioned many times that Hebrews 11 is God's Hall of Fame. Uh, you have a number of 
men and some women mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. The reason they're mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 is that they walked by faith, trusting in the living God. Without faith, Hebrews 11:6 6 says, it is impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Um, we are looking at the different uh, men that have been listed uh, in Hebrews 11, some of them uh, very well known, some of them like Moses, Abraham, etc. Others not so well known. We're getting into some of the obscure guys as we move towards the end of Hebrews 11. Uh, but they were all men who walked by faith. They have, uh, they have finished their course. Uh, they are with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But we are now... We're treading the earth. We're walking our course. Some of us are young. We're just kind of getting going. Some of us are approaching midlife. Um, some of us are past midlife. Um, some of us uh, are thinking more and more about the finish line, and that's not a bad thing to think about death. It is a wise thing to think about death because it's coming. And it is not something that should terrify us. It is not something that should uh, overwhelm us, uh, especially if you understand what the scriptures say about it. In fact, earlier, uh, we're in Hebrews 11, earlier in, in Hebrews, as I work in this brand new Bible here, if you look in Hebrews 11, it talks about, and, and see, this is why when I was at Dallas Seminary looking at the two different formats of New American Standard Bibles. I really like this new one, as I mentioned last week. I didn't realize it at the time, but I really, really was drawn to it because it's the large print edition. But I was used to this other format because I knew exactly where the verses were on the page. And I don't have that now. So even as I brought up this verse, I had a moment of panic that I would know where the verse is. And so far, I'm not finding it. But somewhere in Hebrews, and you just might want to take a minute and read through the book. In fact, I think that's probably, um, what I should do, although I just happened to find it. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, meaning Jesus, Watch this, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We don't have to be afraid of death because Jesus has conquered death. John Owen wrote a book back in the 1600s called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Christ killed sin and he killed death, and death could not hold him in. And so we don't have to be afraid of death. Uh, Jesus stayed away from Lazarus' uh, home on purpose. On purpose, he stayed away. Well, why did he do that? Well, he, wanted, he didn't want there to be any doubt that Lazarus was dead. Because when he showed up, he was going to show that he ruled death. And when he showed up, his sister, one of the sisters said, Lord, if you had have been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. Why? Because Jesus has conquered death. So, if you're getting close to 80, what does Psalm 90 say? It's to the days of our lives that contain 70 or due to the strength of 80 years. If you're getting into your 70s, 80s, you're probably thinking about death. But it shouldn't be keeping you up at night if you understand and realize what Christ has done on the cross. You see, he's conquered death. So Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You take your dying breath, oh, it's coming to an end. Are you kidding me? It's just getting going. The party's about to start, man. Do you believe that? Death is promotion. All, the, all this is over. It's done. All this nonsense, all this pain, all the stress, all the difficulty. It's over, it's done with. Forever. 
Now, that's what you call good news. So we don't have to be slaves to this because of what Christ has done. But we're walking by faith until we die or until the Lord returns and we're promoted to be with him. Here's what the Lord does in a man's life. And he did it with every one of these guys in Hebrews 11 and he's doing it with us. He brings us to himself. Uh, we're all sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Then you go to Romans 6.23, the old Romans road, you know. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, so we all start out as sinners, but Christ comes into our lives, he invades our lives, he makes us alive in Christ, he gives us faith, we call out on the name of the Lord, we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. Um, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So there's a point in our lives when we are born again. And we are brought to Christ and we trust alone in him as our Savior. We believe, we, we, we believe as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that is, uh, these, these things are of first importance. That Christ died for our sins. He was buried on the third day, he rose. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the apostles. He appeared to over 500 at one time. Once again, he conquered death. He is now at the right hand of the Father. He lives forever to make intercession for us. One day he's going to return. In the interim, he has brought us to know him, that spiritual birth. Now we're, now, now we're growing spiritually. Now we're walking by faith, trusting in him. What does it mean to walk by faith? Because Hebrews 11 is all about walking by faith. These guys that are all mentioned in Hebrews 11, they walked by faith. They were sinners. They messed up. They, they had done shameful things. Uh, even after they had come to really know the Lord, they still sinned. They would fall short, but they would come back to him. Um, they weren't flawless. They weren't perfect. Uh, they had done shameful things, but he takes them from shame to fame, if you will, because of his greatness. And these guys are models of walking by faith, even though they weren't perfect. Um, what does it mean to walk by faith? Here's a, there's, there's a, I think there's a lot of confusion about faith. When we talk about walking by faith, to me, here's what it means. When you walk by faith, you are counting and trusting on God to be faithful to you. Not that you're faithful, because we kind of go up and down, and we're all over the map sometimes. Um, we want to grow in grace, and we want to become more consistent, and as we become more mature, we become more consistent. But we never get to where we would hope to be, not in this life. Walking by faith is trusting that he will be faithful, and that he is the God who doesn't lie, and that he will fulfill every one of his promises to us at the right possible time and the best possible time. So we're trusting in God in dependence upon him. And what happens in our lives is that I think you could make this statement and make a case that every guy in this room, there's an area in your life, if you've been here, you've heard me say this many times, there's an area in your life, there's at least one area in your life that you can't get control of, you can't get your arms around, you can't fix, and if God doesn't come through for you and deliver you, you're finished and you're toast. But he comes through. And the longer you walk with him, the more you can look back and you've got a history of watching the faithfulness of God, which builds your faith for where you are now. Um, so God calls men. And then what does he want to do with those men? He wants to take them and... and when it, when it says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. He wants us to become the men that he has designed for us to become, which is he wants us to become mature men who are following the shepherd. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Every man is following someone. I don't care who you are. You're following someone or something. You have, you're, there is someone or something that you are pursuing. Some guys it's fame, some guys it's money, some guys it's, uh, it's a promotion, some guys it's a certain level of this, of income, of status, of select. I don't know what it is. Everybody's following something. 
Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And as we follow him, he calls us to himself, not only to save us from sin, watch this, but he calls us so that he can use us. He's got something for you to do. He's got something for me to do. And for most guys, it's not becoming preachers. If everybody was a preacher, nothing would get done. Now, there's two ways of taking that. But how I intend it is that there are different callings. And being a plumber is as sacred as being a preacher. Because if you don't have plumbers, it's tough to preach. <laughs> when you got on a Sunday morning, how many thousands of people in this auditorium? Uh, someone needed to put those sewer lines in right. Uh, how you do your work is important. So to be used by God doesn't mean you go into full-time ministry. I, I surrendered the ministry. Okay. Well, you're a plumber? Surrender to being a plumber to the glory of God. The very best one you can be. Uh, he gave you gifts. He gave you skills. Uh, you do your task. The next guy does his task. The next guy, and we got all these different gifts. So, so it, it, whatever your work is, see, here's the deal. And we're just not about our work. Every man has, every man has a sphere. You have a sphere of influence. God calls us in our spheres. He wants to use us in our particular sphere, in our particular orbit. In your orbit, in your sphere, uh, you have family. Your family needs you to be a mature man. Your family needs you, and your extended family needs you to be a mature man. And as we get older, they should be looking more and more to us. This is why, as we get older, you got to really watch yourself that you don't become um, uh, I'm trying to edit myself here. Um, you don't want to become an old, weird guy. You know what I mean? You don't want to be, become an old, cantankerous guy that nobody wants to be around. You don't want to do that. Didn't you have an uncle like that? Nobody wanted to be around him at Christmas. But he's getting older, and he's kind of a pain in the rear end to be. Don't be like that. He wants us to become mature men. Mature, mature men who can have an influence. Mature men that can have wisdom and can share it with those in our sphere. So in your family, he wants you to become a mature man. Not an immature man. We used to be immature. The, the name of the game is that when God calls men, he calls us not only to salvation, but now he wants to use us. In order to use us, he's going to mature us. He will put us in situations where we have to walk by faith and trust him. I got a lot of change going on in my life. A lot of change. Um, I talked some about it last week. Hopefully, and I shared some of that, hopefully to encourage some of you guys. Um, we all hit the wall at certain times in life, and we think we're finished. And then what happens is the Lord shows up, and you find out you're not finished. You're not finished till you're finished. That's so profound, I'm going to write it down. It just came across my, you're not finished till you die. Your work's not finished. But sometimes we hit spots and we, th we think we're finished, but you're not. He's just getting you ready for the next level. Um, I've seen him do some remarkable things in the last seven months, and there have been a lot of change. I had another change this week. At Christmas, my uh, son-in-law gave me an iPad. And I told him, I said, well, thanks. I don't even know what you do with the thing. But I'm not touching this until you set it up for me and show me what to do. So night before last, he said, hey, Steve, can I come by tonight? You, let me show you how to do this. So he showed me how to do it. And you know, my son Josh and I are working on this book together for young men. And Josh lives in downtown Dallas, and we're out by Lake Louisville. And Josh is driving back and forth. He says, Dad, we got to start doing, we got, we got to do Skype. 
we can save a lot of time if we do Skype. So now I'm Skyping <laughs> on an iPad. I never used an iPad in my life until 48 hours ago. And then when Court was setting up this, the, what do you call it, the iPad, I said, hey, can you, set, can you do Skype on this thing? And he goes, yeah. All right, let's Skype it. I don't think that's the right terminology, but <laughs> I'm trying to get with it here. And so he sets up Skype, and then we Skype Josh down in Dallas. And so 11.30, what's tonight? Wednesday, Monday night, Josh and I are talking about the book through Skype, and we're catching up. It was, it was kind of wild. I can't believe I'm doing this. But I'm looking at my computer, and there's Josh, and he's looking at me, and there's a box, and I can see me. And we're just talking, normal. And, uh, and he said, hey, I found something, Dad. He goes, I'm going to text this to you. I said, OK. So I pick up my iPhone. And I said, wait a minute, you're texting it to what? He goes, the iPhone. I said, well, I got an iPad. And, and I'm standing there looking at a computer with an iPad in one hand and an iPhone in the other. I was very proud. <laughs> and I didn't know what I was doing with any of them. But as we're talking, we're talking about this book to young men. And Josh made a statement to me. He said, so you know, Dad, we're having the change up. He told me this is how we got into writing this book together. I'm going somewhere with this. Uh, what he had told me, he says, Dad, the way you're going, you can't do that because it's not going to work with these young guys, 18 to 29, because they're in a completely different place. And that's how we got into this. So the other night, he says, so, Dad, he said, in Point Man, you started it off, and you said the enemy has a twofold strategy for men. He wants to alienate and sever the relationship you enjoy with your wife. That's marriage. He wants to alienate and sever the relationship you enjoy with your kids. That's being a father. He said, we can't start there, Dad. That's where you started, what, 23 years ago? I said, yeah. He said, we're going to have to make a case for marriage. Now, you didn't have to do that 23 years ago. I said, no, I didn't. He goes, you're going to have to make it now. And not only a case for marriage, you're going to have to make a case for fatherhood, biblical fatherhood because they don't want it. Not all young men, but many. They don't want it. Then we started thinking, well, why don't they want it? The reason many of them don't want it is that when they think of marriage, they think about how they were raised. And it was not pleasant. And they think about, oh, and then this relates to manhood. Because we're not going to have to do a case for marriage and a case for fatherhood. We're going to have to do a case for manhood. And he said, you're going to have to be very careful the terms you use because, quite frankly, the concept of manhood is abhorrent to some of these younger guys. Now, why would that be? Well, I'll tell you why. Because the primary man in their life dropped the ball big time. Why? Because he was not mature. Because he was immature. And when, as we were talking, Josh said, so, Dad, the thing we've got to stress here is that, and a lot of these guys have been hurt. Why were they hurt? Well, they're the products of divorce. Why are they the products of divorce? Well, not every case, but a lot of cases, a father, sometimes it's a mom, becoming more and more the, the women who are becoming involved in affairs, more and more. But it used to primarily be the guys. Um, why does a guy go get in an affair and sleep around and do all that? Because he's selfish. He's selfish. And because he was selfish, you got hurt. Your mom got hurt. The family was destroyed because one guy was selfish. See, mature, and you say, well, you're talking about being mature. Yeah, what is mature manhood? Mature manhood is not selfishness. Mature manhood is selflessness. That's mature manhood. The Son of Man did not come to be served. Jesus did not come to be served. Jesus did not come to be waited upon. Jesus came to serve. You see? And so a lot of young guys, the reason they've been wounded, well, I don't know about this manhood thing. That's because you were wounded 
by a man who was not being the man he was supposed to be. Instead of selfless, he was selfish. That's why you're wounded. That doesn't mean you throw it all out. You guys get my drift? So what God wants to do is he wants to come into our lives. We all start out selfish. There's a word now that's real big. It's, the, it's narcissism. You ever, you ever read any articles about, you know, the narcissist? That's just a guy who's selfish. He has basically no conscience about anything except himself. He's not aware. He's not tuned in to anybody else. Uh, you talk about your sphere of influence. The only sphere of influence he cares about is him. That's, and that's how we start out, because we're sinners. But what the Lord wants to do is transform us and turn us into mature men. So we're born again. Now we're on this path of, of becoming conformed to the image of Christ. And you want to talk about selflessness, that's Christ. Although he existed as God, Philippians 2, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to. So he laid aside his privileges in heaven and came to earth. And basically what did he do? He took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, went to the cross in our place, and took the torture and the blows and the nails and the whips and the thorns in our place. That selfless, and it goes on and says, have this same mind which in you which was in Christ Jesus. We're to be selfless. That's a mature man. And in a sphere of influence, whatever your, the, the sphere of influence is, you got your family you got work, you got friends. You see, when a man is a mature man following after the Lord, you're going to be used. Not because you're well-known, not because you're famous, not because of this, and who wants that anyway? But just, you're going to have a profound influence because as he transforms you, that example that's flowing out of your life through the life of Christ is going to influence and demonstrate reality to them. And as the culture gets worse and worse, those who are mature in Christ are going to stand out even more. You see, it's never been needed more. Uh, on your way, uh, we're, we're going to look at Gideon tonight. In, and he's mentioned in Hebrews 11, verse 32. And he's just mentioned. So, Let's look at the mention in Hebrews 11.32. And then we're going to make our way to Judges 6. Hebrews 11, verse 32. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, etc., etc., etc. These are guys who walk by faith. And he mentions Gideon. Well, he doesn't have time to talk about Gideon here. Gideon is referred to in Judges 6, so let's go to Judges 6. But on your way to Judges 6, stop off at 2 Timothy 3. Maybe five guys I talked to today, if I take the time to count them. At least five have said to me, can you believe how quickly things are going downhill? Didn't use the exact terminology, but the meaning and the concept was the same from at least five different guys. You said it to me, Jim. Ken Sibley said it to me this afternoon. Some other guys, at least five. Second Timothy 3. Look at this. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. So what do you think? Are we in the last days? Well, I'll tell you what. We're more in the last days than Timothy was, or Paul, when, they, when it was written. Right? We're closer to the end than they were. It, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Well, I'd say the difficult times are... And Bennett, we talked about it. Difficult times are, uh, they seem to be all around us, don't they? In just about every aspect of our existence. 
Anything you can think. So this week, here's what I saw in the LA Times yesterday, front page LA Times. It's the first article I've seen in a major newspaper, and I'm, I'm not gonna get the quote exactly right, but it was a picture of a guy looking in the mirror, and you could identify him. Um, and basically, pedophiles, those who have sex with children, those who are attracted sexually to children, um, experts say pedophiles may not have a choice in the matter. Now, I was on a plane 20 years ago with a guy who was explaining homosexual behavior to me and using that argument. And he was a member of a church in Dallas, and, you know, and, you know, he's giving me the, the spiel. I said, so how do you feel about pedoph pedophilia? He goes, oh, that's terrible. I said, really? I said, before long, you're going to be using an argument on pedophilia. You see, they were born wired this way. And the first time I've seen it in a major newspaper, and then I saw it again, I saw it twice in the last two days. This, here we go. Here we go. Realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. Now watch this. And we can go all through this. I don't have time to go through it, but watch this. Men will be lovers of what? Of self, lovers of money. Yeah. That's where we are. I'll tell you what, I've got as much potential as anybody in the world to be a lover of self, and so do you. All this stuff that's in here, that could be me, it could be you, except for the grace of God. See, that's where the whole world is going. That's exactly where the Lord does not want me to go. That's where he doesn't want you to go. He wants us to go the other way. Right? Yeah. All right, uh, keep going left to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 19, Josh and I were talking about this as we were Skyping. I'm going I'm to drop that through the message tonight because I'm very proud that I'm Skyping. I tried FaceTime. It scared me. It was too much too soon. The problem with Skype, I don't know how to turn it off. Every time I walk out of my office, I'm on TV now. It's a little frightening. So I haven't been in my office in two days. So anyway, watch uh, 2.19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Watch this. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. That is the opposite of a man who is a lover of self. That's the goal. God's goal in your life and mine. So, so you're married? You got kids? You got grandkids? What's going on in your life? Okay. You work somewhere? You got, you got friends? Okay. All right. That's your sphere. That's your orbit. What should be the goal? Not to be a narcissist, not to be a lover of self, but to be a man who is following Christ. And because of what Christ is doing in your life as he matures your, you, you are not selfish, you are selfless, and you are genuinely concerned for their welfare. And they know it. That's a godly, mature man. That's the goal. Now we go to Judges 6. And we meet up with Gideon. Now how does God develop this in our lives? How does God develop a man who is going from 
immaturity to maturity, he, uh, as, uh, who was it? Thomas Watson said, God has many tools in his toolbox to develop his men. He uses all kinds of things. Uh, I, I, I'm, going to, I, I'm going to helicopter the story and events of Gideon. Many of us know about Gideon. Some of us know partially about Gideon. I'll, I'll touch on it, but not go into great detail. But I want to try and give you f- five um, likely encounters that you will have in your life as you follow Christ and walk by faith. Now, why would you have these encounters? Because it's how God builds our faith and builds us to maturity. Um, Let me give you the first one. We're going to see this in Gideon. And by the way, let let me just go ahead and get to Gideon 6 and to Gideon 6. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges 6. When you get to verse 11, there's this guy Gideon. I touched on this last week. On a sunny day, really a beautiful day. You haven't washed your car in a while. So I'm going to wash the car. So you pull it into the garage. You pull down the garage door. You turn out the lights. And you start washing your car. That makes no sense. That's what he is doing in verse 11 of Judges 6. The angel Lord shows up, and there's Gideon. He was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. We could fly right by that. You don't beat out wheat in a wine press under shelter, you beat out wheat outside because you harvest your wheat and then you take a fork you pick up the wheat and the stalks have little pieces of chaff and you want to separate the chaff is worthless you want to separate the chaff from the good wheat so outside you use the wind and you take that and you go like this and the wind blows the chaff you don't want that inside, you want it outside. Well, why is this guy doing it inside? He's hiding out from the Midianites. If you read the previous 10 verses who come in, when they, the Israelites plant their crops and it's harvest time, the Midianites come in by the hundreds of thousands. What do they do? They devastate the crops and they plunder them and they've got the Israelites running and hiding in fear. And that's why Gideon is in the garage, in the wine press, trying to thresh out some wheat so he'll have something to eat because he's living in absolute fear and terror. And the angel of the Lord shows up to him in verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Which is somewhat humorous because he was anything but a valiant warrior. He was scared spitless is what he was. He was no valiant warrior. But here's what's interesting. God addresses him not for where he is, but for what God intends for him to become. And God does that with all of us. When God calls a man to salvation, he not only calls you to be saved, but he calls you for a work in mind that he has for you to do. And you sign up in the king's army. You, you sign up to be a Christian soldier, and you sign up to follow the Lord of hosts, and he is the leader, and you are the soldier, and you are under his authority, and you follow him. Uh, but that's not how we start out. We start out self-centered, but he wants us to become valiant. Well, let me tell you something. Valiant warriors are not selfish. Um, You read some of these books out about some of these uh, Navy SEALs, Green Beret guys that have died in combat and all this. These guys die for their brothers. Jesus said, no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for a friend. Selfish guys don't lay down their lives. Selfish guys on the Titanic dressed up as women and jumped in the rowboats. 
That's what selfish men do. A valiant warrior is not selfish. He is selfless. He will lay down his life. Gideon was not there yet, but it's what God intended for him. And so God's going to start a process with him. And as you look at Gideon's life, you're going to see one, two, three, four, five things that will probably happen in your life. Here's the first one. Number one, a man walking by faith most likely will encounter, here's number one, a season of devastating loss. Now, I talked about this last week, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. I'm not talking about perpetual devastating loss. Now, think about devastating, not, not just loss, devastating loss. This might happen once or twice, maybe three times in your life. But it just, you never, you never see it coming. And it knocks you off your feet. And you're not sure you'll ever recover. Uh, it marks you for the rest of your life. So Mary and I, Sunday night, are watching Downton Abbey. Any of you guys watching this with your, with your wives? It's really kind of a fascinating, it's the third season now, it's one of those BBC things, it's on PBS and Masterpiece something. And it's about this family with this estate called Downton Abbey. And in fact, they got a, a, a documentary on the actual place called Downton Abbey, which is actually called something else. But it's been in this English gentrified family for hundreds of years and has passed on down through the generations. Uh, Downton Abbey, whatever the real name is, sits on 5,000 acres. And before World War II, before World War I, these people lived an incredible life in the Victorian age. You had all these classes in England. And so it's a story of a family and the transition that happens when World War, come, World War I comes and then the class distinctions are starting to be broken down and you look at the lives of the people and because all the, these wealthy families, just incredible, the wealth, the affluence, it's just unbelievable. But then you have the people downstairs who serve them. And they have valets and coachmen and butlers and um, cooks and gardeners and, I mean, it's... And usually around these great estates, there would be a village um, you often see that in England. You'll see it if you go to Hearst Castle in California, because he spent 40 years building that thing and he never finished it. But five miles down the coast, there's a little village called Cambria, and all the uh, carpenters and all the landscape guys and the zookeepers and all, they all live in Cambria. You see, it was an economic engine. So Sunday night, Lord, is it Grantham? gets a call from his banker and he goes into London and he finds out that he made a big investment in some railroad stock in Canada and it, and it sucker torpedoed and he's basically lost everything. And it changed everything because now he's out of money and he's got to keep this big thing going and, and it's a crisis, you know. And I told Mary, I said, I said hey, pause that. And uh, she looked at me and I said, that's what happened to J.C. Ryle. She goes, the guy who wrote Holiness. And I go, yeah, J.C. Ryle uh, died in 1900. But J.C. Ryle was in the Church of England, which had gone liberal, but he was a, 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 a fire-breathing, Bible-teaching preacher, greatly used by God. Uh, he came to the Lord his last year at Oxford. He was a great athlete, uh, the best cricket player in Oxford, um, graduated in the top three of his class, he had a home like this called Henley. Coachman, footman, butlers, this. I mean, just unbelievable wealth. Uh, he got sick toward his last year of his senior year, went into uh, the chapel service because everyone went to church. Heard a man uh, read out of the Bible, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And the man was reading it with pauses, not because... Many, many felt he didn't even know the Lord, but he was trying to do it for a theatrical effect to, to move people. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And that, not of your own. And as he quotes Ephesians 2.8, Ryle had heard this since he was a kid. The word of God, like a sword, it is a sword, penetrated his heart and he was converted, listening to Ephesians 2.8, read by some guy who probably didn't even know the Lord. 
and it turned his whole life around. Six months later, he goes home to visit his parents at Henley, and his father tells him that his bank has collapsed. And just like Lord Grantham, only Lord Grantham at the end of the show has something happen, and other money comes in and he saves the whole thing. Well, that didn't happen in real life. And what happened to J.C. Ryle is that he lost everything. And they had a concept called primogenitor that the firstborn son gets the entire inheritance. And he lost everything. And he said, I didn't have a farthing. A farthing is smaller than a pence, smaller than a penny. And he watched them take away the furniture and the paintings and the tapestry. It was all lost. And he was devastated. And not just financially, but class-wise, he was an outcast. His whole life was gone. He was 25 years old. He said, if I had not have found Christ months before, I'm not sure I would have lived. Unbelievable devastation. And this man who had everything wound up being a, uh, uh, an assistant pastor in, in little rural churches. Never owned a piece of property again. Had a little manse. Church-provided housing. Who had known all the splendor and grandeur. Later in his life, he said, there's not a day of my life that is not going by that I haven't thought of that day when I lost everything. But he said, I am not sure God would have used me if there hadn't been total devastation in my life. And years later, he had unbelievable fruitfulness. But Ryle was a solid man of God. And often in the lives of solid men of God, you look somewhere, you'll see devastation. It'll probably happen to you at some point. Uh, for many of you, it has. It's when devastation hits that we really understand that apart from me, you can do nothing. Nobody wants it, but it happens. When it happens, it's for a season, it's by design, and there's a purpose in it. I got to move on. Second thing you learn out of Gideon's life. A man walking by faith most likely will encounter, number two, a call to obedience in his own life and his own home. Let me show you this. So the angel Lord appears to him. The angel Lord basically says, listen, I'm going to use you to deliver your, your people from these meeting nights. I'm going to use you and you're going to fight them and you're going to take them. Look at verse 25. But watch immediately what he calls him to do. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bowl and a second bowl, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside. And Asherah was a, a type of sexual phallic image that was involved in Baal worship. It was an idolatrous worship of an idol that God had condemned. But in their home, they, had, they were doing Baal worship. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants, did as the Lord had spoken, and because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. But at least he did it. So what does he do? At night, he gets his guys together, and they pull down these altars of Baal. And then they're going to replace it with an altar to the Lord. And so what happens the next day? The men show up, verse 28, early in the morning. Altar of Baal was torn down. Asherah beside it was cut down. The second bowl was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, who did this thing when they searched about and injured and inquired? They said, it's Gideon, the son of Joash. The men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son Gideon that he may die. He's torn down the altar. Now watch this. Watch what happens to Gideon's father. I want to show you something. When a man follows the Lord and gets serious about the Lord, and you begin to get serious about sin and dealing with sin and obeying the Lord and doing what he says, inevitably what's going to happen is you may be the only guy in your family, but you step out, and I'm going to tell you something, you're going to have an influence on somebody else. Here's a son. Watch the influence he has on his father. So they say to the dad, hey, bring out your kid, and we're going to kill him. The father stands up in verse 31 and says, Will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. Hey, if Baal's a god, let him contend for himself, because someone tore down his altar. He can't even protect his own altar. So here you have the father siding with the son, being influenced by the son's obedience to the living God, 
That's leadership. You see how one guy can make a difference? The father should have been setting the pace, but he didn't do it. So the Lord goes to the son, the son does what is right, and then the father suddenly gets courage by watching his son, and he steps up to the plate and starts being a man. You see how that works? But it starts with one guy. Interesting, isn't it? Psalm 101. Let me show you that. God wants this to be lived out. Now, now I want to say this to you. A lot of guys say, oh, I can't come to the Lord. I've sinned. I've fallen short. I've done this and this and that. I can't come. Why can't? Well, I've got to clean myself up. No, that's a mistake. You can't clean yourself up. You come to the Savior. He's the only one who can make you clean. Once you come to Christ, He cleans you up. You come, as the old hymn says, just as I am, you come. You say, you come to Him. He will clean you. Now that you're born again, as you're beginning to grow, He will, by, your, by His Spirit, begin to uh, make clear that there are certain things in your life that He wants you to deal with. It's part of the growth in the Christian life. He wants you to become holy even as he is holy, okay? But we're still sinners. But note, look, look at Psalm 101, because this is what he wants to see happening in our lives when we get serious about the Lord. Psalm 101, verse 2. David says, I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? Watch this. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. He's talking about his home. A lot of people in the Bible Belt in the South, they know how to do the thing at church. They know what to say. They know what to do. Christianity is not primarily in public at church. Primarily, Christianity is at home and private. I will set no worthless thing before me. Where? In my home. There are things that need to be torn down in homes that shouldn't be there. So tear them down. You say, well, what are they? Well, I'm not going to give you a list. Hey, the Lord will put, make it real clear as you read the Scriptures and you're open to Him. But He'll convict you about something. A lot of guys watch pornography at home, on the computer when the, whenever the wife and kids are gone. And you think you're not going to get caught. You're going to get caught. And it'll be the best thing that ever happened to you. If you respond and you're ashamed, you say, I'll never do this again. And then you do it again. And you know, you, oh, forgive me, Lord. And you do it again. And you don't. <clears throat> Some sins you're not going to break by yourself. Uh, James 5 says, confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Whenever I've seen a guy make a break from pornography, it involves somebody else that he came clean with. And then they check in with each other. I can't tell you how many guys I know who have said to their wives, check my phone, check my computer anytime you want, and I promise I won't erase my history. Now, that's not where they used to be. And there was a lot of pain in getting there, but you got to come clean and you got to confess. And you got to have someone with you and praying for you because this stuff is habitual. This stuff is addictive. There is power in sin. You say, yeah, I don't want it. And then a lot of times, even after we come to the Lord, you say, yeah, but I failed again and I went back. I said I wasn't going to, and I did it. And I really don't want to do this. No, you don't. Well, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. You're a Christian. Well, how do you know I'm a Christian? Because you're concerned about it. Non-Christians aren't concerned about it, are they? No, but see, the Lord's in your life. You go, I want to walk by the Spirit. Well, you are walking by the Spirit. What happened is you tripped up. You ever go out on a walk? You ever just kind of trip? Well, yeah, there's a difference between a trip, a misstep, and, and a walk. You're walking with the Lord and we'll still trip up and sin. It's Romans 7. I do the things I don't want to do. But then you've got to go to Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. But then you've got to continue through verse 8, uh, down in Romans 8, because it talks about fighting sin and killing sin. Let's go to Romans 8. There is power in sin, but the power of Christ is greater. 8.12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, live according to the flesh, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
Putting to death the deeds of the body, walking by the spirit, has to do with the mind. You go on to Romans 12. Let's go to Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I can't go into a lot of this, but how do you start killing sin? How do you start walking in the Spirit? When you walk in the Spirit, you're walking in the Word. you gotta, you got to... You've got to renew your mind. Instead of junk in your mind, you put truth in your mind. How can a young man, this is Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. So you get, I'll get on the offensive. But you see, you're a believer. You just need help. And you don't fight this by yourself. You need help tearing down some of these idols. That's what the body of Christ is about. Here's the third thing. And I got three minutes to cover the last three. Just like I planned it. Gideon's a new believer. And because he's a new believer and he's, he's you know, hey, the guy's immature. Go jump down to um, jump down to six, verse thirty-six, because of judges. I'm sorry, because the Lord has said to him, "I'm going to use you to deliver your people from these Midianites. I'm going to raise you up as a leader," which is an amazing thing. It's so amazing to him that earlier he gives all his excuses to the Lord in six fifteen. Lord, how can I deliver Israel? My family's the least in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my father's house. A lot of times God calls someone to do a work, and we start giving all the reasons we're not qualified to do the work. He knows you're not qualified, but he's with you. You know, it's not in your power, it's in his strength. He takes guys that are disqualified, and he qualifies them. Because his power is perfected in weakness. So he's back at it. Verse 36, Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken... Behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only. You know, in the morning you come out and there's dew? You know what I'm talking about? The wet stuff. Dew. D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-D-E-
That's why scripture is so important. It is not an idle word for you, Deuteronomy 32 says. It is your life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So mature men get mature because they're feeding on the word of God. Don't be conformed to the world, Romans 12, 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? By putting the word of God in your mind. Romans 8, 31. If you continue in my signs, then say that. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. God in his mercy will do signs. We thank him for it. We honor him. We give him glory when, when he comes through in miraculous ways. But oftentimes, we're just simply trusting in his word without the answer yet. So you just keep pressing on. Okay. Here's number four. A man walking by faith most likely will encounter a time where God strips away your normal, legitimate resources. Boy, that's encouraging. Uh, if you go on to chapter 7, now these, these guys they're going up against, the Midianites, they can't even count how many of them. Hundreds of thousands. Okay, Gideon, if you look at verse 7, has got 32,000. If you look at chapter 7, he's got 32,000. You know what the Lord says? The Lord says, that's too many. It's too many. They're in the hundreds of thousands. I got 32. That's too many. So the men who are fearful, the men that aren't up for this, the men that don't have the courage, give them an option to leave. And you know how many left? What's it say? Verse 3, 22,000 people returned, but 10,000. So he goes from 32,000 to 10,000. I'm down to 10,000. Then the Lord says this. That's not, you know, that's, I don't like those numbers. So now you go down to the creek and you sip the water. Anyway, you know that story. And he separates them again, and now he's down to 300. There'll be a point in your life where God will strip away from you the normal, legitimate circumstances that most men have, even other Christians have, but he won't let you have them. And the reason for that is this. And he said it later. He said, if, if I give you the victory with all those thousands, they're going to get the glory. But if I give you the victory with 300, the glory will come to my name. And he deserves the glory. So don't be surprised if you look around and your friends have this and this and this, and God has withheld it from you. You're walking by faith. You're not trusting in your resources. You're not trusting in your IRAs or your net worth. Man, it used to be this. Well, that's all the way down here. Well, you know what? He's still your banker. And he's still your provider. So you're okay. And he will make a way and he will deliver in his way, in his time. But nobody wants to go through that. But it's not uncommon. So if you're there, just know you're in good company. Number five. A man walking by faith most likely will encounter a remarkable deliverance that can only come from the Lord. Let me say that one more time. A man walking by faith most likely will encounter a remarkable deliverance that can only come from the Lord. So God strips away the normal resources. God strips away the normal supply lines. And he basically has what the old Puritan preachers used to call deadness of means. Can I tell you what deadness of means is? When God says to Abraham, you're 99, and I'm going to give you a son, and you're 99. And there's no sap flowing in the tree, <laughs> if you get the metaphor. And your wife's 10 years younger than you are, and she's had the hysterectomy of natural chronological age. That's called deadness of means. There's no stinking way. And then what does he do? He makes a way where there is no way through a remarkable deliverance. And who gets the glory? This is the walk of faith. Many guys in this room have been all through 
these different points. I'm curious. I'm just curious. And some of you guys are right in the middle of a real tough stretch. But I'm curious. How many of you guys have experienced deadness of means and then watch God come through with a remarkable deliverance that you never saw coming? Yeah. That's what he does. And we keep pressing on from faith to faith, trusting in him because it's all about trust. And the more I trust in him, and the more I entrust my future to him, Peter says, let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. You say, I'm so tired, though, of this. Yeah. Sure you are. But he knows your limits. He knows how far to push. And when there's no more left, it'll be there. So a day at a time. A day at a time. You guys with me? Let's bow. Father, we want to be a men. We want to be men. Not selfish. We've been that. We've done all that. We could write volumes on that. We don't want to be selfish men. We want to be selfless men. So you take us through these hard times and you put us in these vices and you squeeze us and you squeeze us harder and we're not sure we can take anymore. You're just squeezing the self out of us. You're squeezing the self-reliance out of us, the self-plans, the self-dreams, the self-nonsense that we think is important in life and validates us and authenticates and gives us meaning. Help us to submit to your sovereignty and your providence. Thank you that you don't leave us in the vice forever, but we're there for a reason, for a purpose, for a set amount of time, and then you release us. And then as you did with this young man, Gideon, you used him, and you'll use us. This week, in our sphere of influence, as we follow you, help us to influence someone, we may not even know they're watching, for you because of the work you've done in our lives as we walk in faith, trusting you for each step. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.